0: You're listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcasts interview with Bill Hare, founder and CEO of Climate Analytics. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. What led you to found Climate Analytics?
1: we started it to try and make a difference particularly focused very much on what were acceptable levels of warming to look at the all the scientific issues around what were acceptable levels of warming and how would that guide policy Tell-
0: about your journey as a physicist and climate scientist?
1: Well, I guess I got involved with climate change first, actually, through my undergrad work at Murdoch University and learned about the new problem of climate change. This is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and became increasingly concerned about that problem. But I was also very much engaged with environmental issues generally, including biodiversity, forest protection, and so on. And then those concerns came together in the middle 1980s when I prepared a paper for a conference organised by the CSIRO in Melbourne, the Australia's scientific body, when I looked at impacts in Australia and then it became clear, even from the literature then, that there were going to be some serious issues. That led me to look at the whole problem again of what was climate change, how fast would it happen, what were other older scientists thinking about it and i realized that there already was a lot going on at that time the international council of scientific unions had organized a process on this there was a conference in villach in the mid 80s in austria and so quite a lot was happening. So I, I picked up the issues there and began to work on the idea of uh, the need for a global agreement on climate change. So by the end of the 80s, early 90s, I think there was pretty much a consensus that the only way to deal with this problem was by developing a global agreement. So that's how I started. And I was very much motivated also in those years, in the 90s and 2000s, to look at how to help the small island states and least developed countries protect themselves from what looked like being a really serious problem for them, climate change. And of course, I was at that moment in history in the middle 1990s and so on. I was very much engaged with Greenpeace International, coordinating their work on uh, climate change in the international negotiating and science assessment space with the IPCC. And then I joined the uh, Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, which was led by John Schoenhuber, a famous scientist and physicist in, in the climate area. and he, he encouraged me to go to the Potsdam Institute and follow my scientific interests, which I did for some time. And then that led subsequently to the idea of setting up climate analytics with two other colleagues who were very much engaged with climate science and policy at that time, Associate Professor Malta Meinshausen, who's now heading the Climate and Energy College, University of Melbourne, and McKeel Schieffer, who is one of the co-founders of Climate Analytics.
0: The tools, I want to go into the Climate Action Tracker. It's really put so much clarity because you've been in these rooms, you've been at the table, as you say, you've been authoring, you and Climate Analytics, then authoring papers for the IPCC, but there's a lot of mystery for the the average person to understand. So if anyone has not discovered the Climate Action Tracker yet, go visit that. It gives really detail to help us see where we are, where we need to be. Global carbon dioxide emissions, I believe, is about 70% coming out of cities. So what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource, and waste management? food pollution?
1: That's a good question. The big question is what should they look like as opposed to what might they look like? You see a lot of city developments going on around the world and you think, well, gosh, this is a five degree world we're building here. This is a world where it's immensely carbon intensive, huge amounts of emissions going up. And then the way they're being built is that they become concentrators of heat. We're going to be experiencing more and more extreme temperatures. Cities are going to be on the front line of that with heat extremes affecting human health, livability, whether or not you can even work outside during the day. Those are going to be big issues city design and development needs to address. And I think there's a lot of thinking going on in this area about how cities can become energy positive, produce the energy that they need internally from renewable and other sources without producing emissions, how to make cities' transport systems more sustainable by focusing on public transport, corridors that are denser than others in order to enable people to live and close to where they work and so on. These, I think, are well-known ideas Years, actually and well published and well assessed we, we have one of the leading city researchers on the planet here professor peter newman who is an ipcc convening lead author now for i guess the second or third time and he's been proselytizing about this for decades he was one of my professors actually and helped to get him into the game but i think there's enough thinking there isn't enough real action and of course as with anything in this big world there's positive stories as well right so there's cities that are really trying to do the right thing there's There's whole research programs in China looking at carbon-free cities and how to make cities more sustainable and livable, and there are in other parts of the world. But you still see, if you're looking, for example, at the COVID responses of governments, they've often focused on carbon-intensive transport options cities and cities, freeways, big developments, without focusing on how to make the cities livable and sustainable. So I'm seeing a big gap there, and I think that's going to be one of the things that will ultimately be coming out of the next IPCC report that there's positive signs, but there's huge gap between what the city should be doing and what they are doing.
0: Meeting a target or going towards 1.5, I mean, how realistically, where we are now, where are we going?
1: Well, look, getting to limit warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial is going to be a very tightly run game, right? And I think that's been acknowledged for years and years. I, I don't know who first coined that term. I have a feeling it was John Schoenhofer, but a very tightly run game to limit warming to safe levels. And so the one and a half degree issue is, is very acute. We know now that if we don't limit warming to that level or close to it, we run the risk of really serious damages to natural systems and to a lot of vulnerable countries and their territorial integrity is at risk and so on. So I I think it's going to be very, very close. We know from the physics of it that if we got onto an emission pathway, which involves a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 and getting carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by 2050, then we would limit warming very, very close to one and a half degrees, right? So the big question now is, will we do it? Will the world actually make those emission reductions? And that's really the game that we're in now is we came out of Glasgow with very modest improvement in ambition. I think the emission gap might've been closed by around 15%, if I remember our numbers correctly, a long way to go. So that's why there's a lot of focus this year and next year on getting countries to step up their actual ambition levels and their action levels. So I think we're still in in the game to limit warming to one and a half degrees, but it's going to be very, very tight. It always was tight. So I think that's a really big challenge for everyone now is to really make sure that governments, and their industries get behind this target.
0: Yes, it's good to see that. And as you say, with large entities like the EU, it can put pressure on other countries and imposition of carbon tariffs and these kind of things that help move the needle in the direction it needs to go. Could you go into a little bit about global collaboration and where we need to be moving on that?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I guess one of the earliest understandings of the whole community working on this issue is that there had to be global cooperation to solve the climate change problem, that without it, no single country could change the trajectory of climate change. And I think that basic truth remains the same. But how you operationalize that truth has got more complicated, richer, and maybe even better. We have the Paris Agreement, countries fall under that umbrella. But the big question now is how do we get enough countries to move fast enough? So I think for some time, one of the areas of international cooperation that will probably needs to be focused on is the development of smaller groups of countries who are focused on a sector that matters. So it could be lots of hydrogen partnerships forming, but you can also think about electric vehicle partnerships, about clean ammonia, clean steel, green steel partnerships. So I think that there are talks about forming up those kinds of partnerships, which would be groups of countries who become front runners on these kinds of technological transitions. Why would front running be interesting? Because history tends to show that front runners get an advantage in a market. So if you're a front runner, you're in the market first. If you're successful, you'll stay there in the market. You'll have an oversized market share. So I think that would be a motivation for countries to to really engage with these kinds of partnerships. I I think the bigger political partnerships of the Paris Agreement and regional groupings are really important. But I'm really seeing the need now for some visible, driven partnerships that move individual sectors faster than they're moving at present. And I know there's several governments thinking about those sort of partnerships. They will be at different levels. But... Involving two or three or up to twenty countries, but I think these could be a really important part of the international cooperation and space.
0: I know that you're very supportive, you know, young climate activists. Someone who's been committed to this fight for a long time, and you've given expert evidence for young people's cases. Tell us a little bit about that process.
1: I, I get very excited about young people coming in to the climate space and also young scientists coming into the climate world. So it, it's something that is really exciting to work with and to help new people engage with the climate change issue. I mean, not always are they young. I mean, you've got also old people who sort of farmers as you say, oh, look, I, I never believed in climate change, but now it's a mess. Can you help? So there's that as well. It's great to work with young people and young scientists, particularly to help them become empowered to take part in what is the most important issue that we face right now. And as a career, if you're in a science and policy space, it's hard to find a better one because it's such a rich area. If you get bored with something, then there's 10 or 20 other areas in the same field you could look at that could take up five or 10 years of very active interest and work. So it's a great space to be in. It's also that young people are really beginning to panic about the climate change problem. And that's something that is understood and real. And I think that for my generation who've been involved, it's very important not to underplay the seriousness of it because it is extremely serious, but it's also important to empower younger people to see the potential to solve the problem. It's yes, we can. And so always in life in professional life or personal life, things can be difficult, but there always can be options. And I think it's just important that in working with younger colleagues that one leaves the feeling, well, yes, that was a tough problem and it's really bad, but I think we can see a way through it and we can see a way of actually going further and changing that outcome and doing better. And I think that sort of positivity is something we see from many people. Look, look at Christiana Figueres. She's Mrs. Positive. And it's really essential to create that feeling that we can really do this. And I truly believe we can. We're at a really big turning point in history. And I think all the signs are as if we can really line up everything in the right way, then we can see a big transition happening, hopefully faster than we imagined. I think the strongest message that are some Someone can give from my perspective is you really need to stick at it. You need to really be prepared to stick it at solving this problem because every now and then something will happen that we will think, oh, that was a real mess. And you need to get out of that and look forward and think about, well, let's look at how we can rebuild momentum, how we can solve the problems down here in Australia, which for many people seem impossible. But on the other hand, the potential is to go fast anywhere else on the planet. So it's really a message about focus, about positivity, about finding your place. Where is the place that you feel best that you make your difference, and working on it, and being prepared if that doesn't work to change and try something different? It's a it's a lesson that anyone of my age, I think, would give to anyone of a younger age looking for their direction in the future that you've got to be prepared to dig in. You've got to be prepared to be flexible as well. And I think that what's at stake is the whole integrity of our planet. We've known in the scientific community for a very long time that the natural systems of the planet are going to be the first and hardest affected in most cases by climate change. And we're already seeing our coral reef systems unravel. We're seeing the high Arctic boreal ecosystems of the world unraveling. We're seeing problems begin to encroach into our tropical forests due to droughting, heat and so on. We're seeing species go extinct so this can be limited we can within our lifetime see global warming halted and these problems begin to stabilize and if successful we'll reduce warming from peak levels hopefully around 1.5 degrees and begin to see the systems begin to recover we can really imagine that happening
0: enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.